Hey, Eisen Chandler, my friends and colleagues, and welcome to the I Give a Damn podcast, made possible by Fluorescein Media, the same company behind ODs on Facebook. Today we are joined by Dr. Elza Shearer. Elza is a pediatric optometrist practicing out of New York City. She's a fellow of the American Academy of Optometry, and she's an adjunct clinical professor for SUNY through the Woodhull Medical Center. And today we'll dive into not only how she found her passion in pediatric optometry, but how she views visual development as playing such a critical role in both learning as well as behavior. We also are going to touch on how she discusses myopia management with the many parents of the children that she sees, as well as her other passion of teaching as she plays a mentor to both optometry students but also for undergraduate students as well. So if you've ever been like me and find working with young, small children to maybe push you a little bit outside of your comfort zone, then I think you're gonna get a lot out of this discussion. So please hit that subscribe and follow buttons. And here we go with Dr. Elza Shearer. Elza, uh, first I have to ask, uh, are you a fan of the movie Frozen? I am a fan of the movie Frozen. <laughs> and needless to say, my, I shot up to fame when the Disney musical movie came out. And it's oftentimes one of the connecting points, especially with my young patients. So I just call myself Dr. Elsa. I have that immediate connection. I, I figured that was probably a good thing that you had. Like, as soon as I said, I'm like, oh, if you do pediatrics, that's right. amazing. Like, right. every young little girl is probably going to just be like, oh, Elsa, you know. It's and they... true. I mean, I think I have some rivals now with, like, Moana and some of the other more oh. recent princesses. But... You know, I can still pull the Elsa card here and there. I feel like that's still such a huge thing that every every kid, I mean, we, we have that in our clinic. We have, you know, we can put movies up on the screen. So sure. all the kids are dilating or something. They have something to watch and distract them. Right. It's, I mean, Let It Go is a classic and every little girl and boys, you'd be surprised, can sing every every single word of that of that song. Can so. you can you break out in a song while no, you're singing? No, I'm not going to be breaking out in a song right now. But usually, I try to sing along with them, especially to distract them when sure. I'm trying to do something that they don't like. So, so. you're since you're in, um, tell us a little bit more. Since you're you're you you do pediatrics, but right. you do you mainly do pediatrics, or do you just see all walks of life? What's yeah? So what's your I've had of? a I've had a really interesting seven-year career since graduating in 2015. I've practiced in a variety of settings. I've practiced in two different private OD settings. I've practiced in ODM DSPA settings. I've practiced in hospital. I've practiced in high-end retail. So I've really practiced in a lot. Um, I actually, in the past year, I went through a major career transition. I was at an ODMD practice seeing almost exclusively pediatrics and doing adult strabismus. Wow. And then I transitioned over to a private OD practice in the fall of 2022. And now I see cradle to grave. So it's great. <laughs> I still, peds is still my specialty and I'm still teaching one day a week in pediatric optometry at uh, Woodhall Medical Center, which is a public health hospital here in New York City. Oh, that's awesome. What is, what is your experience like seeing in like a public health hospital setting like that? I mean, do you see a lot more disease? Do you see a lot more poverty? So it's so What's... interesting because when I was at the ODMD practice, we actually practiced in the Bronx and East Harlem and Forest Hills. I actually saw more disease in the Bronx, I'll hmm. be honest. Um, I think I see a little bit at, uh, in Brooklyn where I'm, where the hospital is, but, um, I would say the Bronx, I saw more. I also was just seeing higher volume of patients. So possibly just because I was seeing more, it's just saw more disease, but 
uh, thankfully I, I, the other day I had like a, a really crazy schedule and it was like almost everybody had some sort of ocular disease. It was at the hospital. I was like really grateful for my experience because I could just get through my day. I'm like, oh, this is normal. I think my residents and students are sweating, but I'm like, you guys, it's fine. <laughs> we definitely get those crazy days. I think right. uh, every, I think every OD out there can, can get that same feeling where it's just, it rains, it pours. Sure. And you always get that patient who at the end of the exam, who you're getting through it. Oh, by the way, I've been seeing double <laughs> right. for the last, you know, two weeks. It's getting worse. Right. And you're just like, oh no. Right. <laughs> Um, so you you have the, have this love for pediatrics. That's sure. been a specialty mm-hmm. of yours. Um, how did you how did you get into it, and how did you even get involved with um, practicing in the different modes that you've been through in just the last seven years? So it's really interesting. I didn't really fall in love with pediatrics until my fourth year in optometry school. I was the kid like growing up. I never was a, like interested in kids i wasn't like the teen who always wanted to babysit like Mm -hmm. i wasn't really interested until optometry school and i i didn't go into optometry school thinking i was going to be a pediatric optometrist or find that specialty and so that was the really the importance of clinical externships and being exposed Mm. during that uh time that i really got to fall in love uh with pediatric optometry and I ended up applying for a residency and I matched at SUNY. So I ended up staying on at SUNY to do my residency. And then um, I kind of cobbled together my schedule here and there and I've made a ride of it so far. (laughs) So did you have like an experience like with a specific patient or you just really had a real good relationship with mentors who were in pediatrics? Like what was really the patients. I I do it for the patients. Definitely. They inspire me. I love the creativity that pediatric demands. I love that you really have to be trusting of your own findings. You know, oftentimes with adults, you can already write your assessment and plan by the end of case history. It's not the case with peds. Mm -hmm. So that part I really like. I like that I have to rely on my own skills to get to the bottom of whatever's going on with them. They often can't advocate for themselves. I have to be a voice to the voiceless. So all those things Mm. really, I find it very rewarding. Plus kids, they don't complain. (laughs) If your prescription's slightly off, you're not gonna hear about it. (laughs) I think there's definitely some truth (laughs) to that. There's other things about kids and then also working with families and just seeing how they grow up. I don't know. I could go on and on. I think peds is great. I'm a huge advocate. I, I find joy in it every, every single day. I know from my own experience, I think there's, there's some, I definitely resonate with that, especially after, after being in a clinic, I worked in the clinic for about five years sure. and watching like a young kid that I helped with, you know, he had like a red eye or a, um, any sort of medical issue. I, sure. I have one patient in my, my mind. I remember seeing him. He got hit in the eye with uh, like a birdie from playing badminton. Oh, yeah. And his parents were freaking out and he was freaking out. Um, he had a hyphema developing. But then I saw him, you know, like four or five years later and now he's like learning to drive in high school and right. just like, whoa. <laughs> and they remember me taking care of them at that time. And, right. Um, so I believe those those sort of bonds, that's huge in growing sure. growing the clinic, growing your practice. Sure. And I think you you feel good as a practitioner, like, wow, I'm Absolutely. actually I'm making an influence on this person's life, you know, and hopefully, obviously in a good way. Correct. Yeah. I mean, you can really, your early intervention really changes the trajectory of the child's life mm-hmm. I'm, with a simple pair of glasses. It doesn't even have to be that complicated. So you know, just having, you know, opening that door for that child is just really powerful. And I think it's magical every single time. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I get up every day and I go to clinic and I get to help them out. I think the the 
the kind of the f interesting that you mentioned that it's you have to rely so heavily on your objective data mm -hmm, on like sure. what you're seeing and experiencing because i think on the flip side something that always made me so uncomfortable working with kids mm -hmm. was the fact that i don't trust them like i don't trust their <laughs> responses their visual acuity don't respond i don't <laughs> trust that at all um you know kids lie they lie all the time. They do. And and so they have different motivations. They do. And it's, <laughs> and, and then you're dealing with sometimes a parent who's overbearing and Correct. like just, um, you know, they're like yelling at the kid because they can't read the twenty twenty line. Like they're angry and like, what are you doing? Like right. why are you helpful. coaching? Yeah, you you don't stop coaching them. <laughs> uh, so I think there's there's definitely a mix. Now you you have Ex no, you don't have externs. You don't have students. Do I you? do have students do. in residence at one day a week at the hospital. So, okay. yeah, not at the private practice. How are how are what's your experience working with both students and residents and their experiences watching them grow working in pediatrics? Where do you do you, sure. do you see them specifically struggle in an area? So it's interesting because not a lot of students get that much pediatric exposure. Mm. Or if they do, it's like very spaced out. It might be like six months between when they've done a peds exam last. And that's like a, obviously a very long time when you're considering their training. So the other thing too is that a lot of times they're, they're experiencing coming into my clinic is only on campus. And so on campus clinic, you know, it's very academic. The exam is very slow. They're looking for every little minutia. I mean, I understand you have to teach them how to do all the things, mm -hmm. but in real, in, in real life, we don't do all the things. It's a very problem oriented exam. We, I, you know, I have a lot of flexibility in my exam flow. And so trying to teach them how to think critically, it's important to have, to know all your tools in your toolbox. I say it's really important to be really good about that and be able to pick one out whenever you need it. But we, mix and match as we need to throughout the pediatric exam and so something's not working you got to switch and you got to switch quickly sure. and so trying to teach them that and then also teaching them it doesn't have to be this like drawn out process not every child needs vision therapy like it's not all about vision therapy in the world where most kids just need glasses or they need allergy drops or something like that. Like it's, it doesn't have to be that complicated. And I feel like at least when I went to school and you and I went to school at the same year, we both graduated in 2015. I feel like a lot of my pediatric knowledge and training did come from VT classes. Right. Uh, and so I think we, we maybe are pigeonholed into that a little bit of just thinking, oh, check binocular vision. Right. And it... Yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's important, but there's a time and place, mm -hmm. right? Most kids just, just need a, a really good refraction. They need a good cover test. You want to check basics of their binocular and a good ocular health assessment. Mm -hmm. And then you mix and match based on, you know, what you're seeing, where you think that exam is going, and what really is the priority for that exam. So you know, really trying to teach my students, it doesn't have to be this like bogged down vision therapy workup, like that's not a primary care pediatric eye exam. Um, and, and really trying to make that connection with the child and then critically thinking about how to best manage the child in the context of their family at the end of the exam. Sure. So, and, and you know, they can do it. It's just some, a lot of times they just really haven't even had the opportunity to, to prove that they can take care of a child competently, so. What's your, I'm always curious about this, but what's your current protocol or your ideal protocol of um, 
full cyclo yeah I mean, damp refractions what's yeah i mean for think, young kids like what's your sure i mean i think um you know as per aoa guidelines you want a good baseline cycloplegic re- refraction mm-hmm. for pretty much every child under the age of 12 let's say you want to get at least a good baseline after that you know, you really can be kind of case dependent, um, depending on what's going on with the kid. If there's amblyopia, if there's strabismus, maybe you're going to be repeating that cyclopegic refraction from time to time. The vision is reduced for some reason. Um, always go back to a cycloplegic exam. So it's not, it's obviously my first exam, I, a new patient always get a good, a good cycloplegic refraction. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it's kind of case dependent. So again, it's, um, it's also practice setting dependent because and for example, my former job when I was seeing really high volume and I had a, was working with a lot of techs, almost everybody was cycloed um, just to kind of streamline my process because yeah. I wasn't didn't have time for subjective refraction necessarily. So I was prescribing straight off my objective. Mm-hmm. So I really think it's it's setting dependent, it's case dependent. You know, it really depends. Um, again, being flexible. And I also think, I teach this to my students too, is that you're the professional. You need to meet the demands of the clinic. So you need to be able to adapt your exam in order to meet those demands. So being creative and being, you know, obviously yeah. without compromising the, the, the quality stand, yeah, of the care. The quality and standard of care. But yeah, being exactly. flexible within the, that kind of paradigm um, and knowing the, the benefits and the shortcomings of every different way you're practicing mm-hmm. in every different setting so if there is a problem, you know how to troubleshoot it. So how do you, what do you think about um, like pediatricians, family doctors using like a Welsh Allen auto refractor during their wealth checkup yeah. or their health checkup? And, <laughs> sorry, checkup. Wealth check- <laughs> uh, <laughs> Maybe we're shaking pennies out of yeah, those kids. <laughs> but but well, in, a way, in a way, I'm sure the insurance is, is, that's part of it. But what do you think about that? Because they're doing those screenings with that undilated sure and then they're telling oh they don't need to see the eye they're telling the parents you don't need to see the eye doctor they did a scan they're fine like it's interesting because i actually find that the welsh allen is sometimes um, a little bit more sensitive and it's picking up more things than just a visual acuity screener so i have mixed feelings about that um i have a you know a lot of opinions about making sure really thinking about your eyes as a tool for learning Mm -hmm. i think that i would love to see more pediatricians more parents more teachers think about vision as a tool for learning you know you get your chromebook and you get your pencils and you get your really cool crayons every year before going back to school but the most important tool is right here on your face how we checked that so that part to me i would love to see move the conversation forward as far as checking the vision, checking the eye health, seeing what's going on, especially if there's an issue with behavior, with attention, with academics for the child's life. Oftentimes, you know, sometimes we get these patients who've been in their third or fourth grade at this point. They're having major issues in school, behavioral, they're in special ed, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, they just need a pair of glasses and nobody thought, hey, let's check their eyes because it can be something as simple as that. Mm-hmm. Um, even if they're pass, passing the vision screening and the pediatrician, they need a full comprehensive exam with a trained eye care professional. So Now, I'm not familiar with the state of New York here where you mm-hmm. practice, but is there any regulation about children need to be seen for an eye exam before starting school? Is there in grade level? Is there any? You know, I it's... There's, to my knowledge, there's not necessarily those types of mandates that there are in certain other states. 
Um, I think that there are, at least in the city, they're they're trying to do a little bit more school-based type of... Um, Just like vision screeners or... Well, it's optometrists going in, but it's a little... It's a little bit of a limited exam because sometimes they can't dilate the patient. True. But at least it's a, um, an optometrist that knows how to do a, a good cover test, a good retinoscopy, is able to look at their motilities or bo- basic binocularity, even if it's set up in a school gym, for example. A lot of times you can still get a doc who has good experience and trusts their skills can and get somewhere in that type of setting, more so than just the school no- nurse, for example. So... Um, there are some movements to try to bring access to children like that. Um, I think it's just, to me, it's more about making that connection between vision and learning just overall. With um, like your practice, you guys, of course, are not just, you have some level of VT or someone you refer to. Do you, do you personally do We do home therapy. Um, it's interesting. We, we, we prescribe home therapy out of our private practice. I co-manage a lot of vision therapy. There's a clinic actually pretty close to the hospital in Brooklyn. So I'm able to, and it's, so that's convenient for families is that proximity, mm-hmm. something somewhere, if you're going for in-person vision therapy, it's nice to be, have that offer in your neighborhood, right? So I co-manage over there. Um, uh, at the private practice, we actually just wrapped up a, a beta project with a, a home vision therapy program that we were co-managing with. So I'm, I'm really interested in how like the home VT, the virtual VT is going to develop. We find that it's home VT is more geared towards our adults right now. So yeah. it would be really great if we can find something that's um, better for the kids. Sure. So we've had, but we've had, I think that's a promising horizon for beat flexibility. You know, making that commitment to come in weekly for vision therapy appointments is a big commitment for many of our families. So trying to be flexible with what we can do between our primary care setting, home vision therapy, and possibly some sort of either virtual vision therapy with an optometrist who's willing to offer that or some sort of virtual program is nice. Right. I think it's exciting to see so many, not just in, in the VT space, but like where just virtual consults are be able to go. Sure. Um, and then, then there are a lot of other countries, whether it's the United States or, or in Europe, that are looking into different programs or VR, Correct. virtual reality. Yeah. Like how can that be utilized in those same in that same space? Right. So. Hey, I just want to take a quick pause and give a shout out to Fluorescein Media. Not only do they make this podcast possible, but they are the company behind the social media community, ODs on Facebook, which is the longest running optometric community with the most active discussions amongst over 46,000 eye care professionals. So if you're not already a member, don't miss out and join the discussion over on ODs on Facebook. Otherwise, let's get back to it. Beyond just vision therapy, I know you do some myopia control, right? right? I feel like it's if you're doing pediatrics, you can't oh, yeah, I not do be paying oh, attention yes. yeah. to myopia control. Right. I mean, right out of the gate, I've been practicing with myopia management since, you know, oh, during residency. That, that's right. They changed the term. Know. They changed it from myopia, myopia control, control to myopia, myopia management. management. I don't know. It's just the double M's is like more appealing, I guess. I don't know. It's probably <laughs> a little bit more accurate too. Correct. Right. Um, you know, we're, we're managing. managing it. Right. We're not controlling it sure um but i did a lot of i've done a ton of atropine treatment um that's you know particularly in like the outer boroughs for example but now that i'm in a private practice i'm fitting more contact lenses so i'm getting more into the multifocal contact lenses and ortho k so i think it's it's 
an exciting enough time to be a pediatric optometrist because I think myopia management. And I mean, it's the the tough thing. I'll be honest. I think some of the the issues with docs even do seeing peds is that it takes a lot of time and you don't make a lot of money off of them. Mm. So let's just be honest. That's just like the reality of it. Um, the, plus, they take up a lot of space because at least two humans show up for one appointment if not like four or five humans show up for sure. one appointment. And so just the, that, just the footprint of seeing peds becomes, you know, arguably an issue, especially you're going to see a lot of it. You need waiting room space. You need bigger exam rooms, blah, even, blah, blah. I didn't even contemplate the whole families, especially in some cultures. Like yes. when, I, when I lived down in Texas, uh, there was a lot of Hispanic culture and the entire family shows sure. up. You Correct. don't just have, you know, mom or, or a brother. You have grandma and grandpa came with yes. too. And they all exactly. want to be in there during the exam. Exactly. So, so you know... You know, I'm hoping that as as docs find that we can find more financial, find more financial um, rewards for myopia management. I'm hoping more docs will be more open to that um, because you, depending on how you stru- structure it, you mm-hmm. can make it a good cash flow for your practice as well. So that's exciting for me, and hoping folks kind of brush up on their skills, so to speak are more willing to, to take a stab at peds and, and find that it actually is really rewarding. And myopia management works. Yeah. It's also rewarding to keep the kid at their minus two for like several <laughs> years if you can, and maybe they only go up at 250, great. Like you did your job and, and you know, it, it really does work if you're, if you're committed to it. Do you find challenges? This is just from, I think, our clinic, and it could just be based on our um, geography. Do you find challenge getting their parents to understand what myopia management or why we need to do this? Yeah, so it's really interesting because as you can probably tell, I've practiced in many different settings and many different cultures. So I think having that cultural like mindset, like you have to really adapt how you speak to every different family, right? Mm -hmm. So I think for a lot of the folks, for example, in the Bronx, it's like a lot of highly, like a lot of immigrants. So a lot of times those parents don't, no one has ever worn glasses. And now all of a sudden little Johnny is like a minus two and they don't understand that they need glasses at age seven or whatever. And they're like mortified, right? Um, So, you know, sometimes that can be a little bit more difficult just to even get the child to wear their glasses versus somebody on the Upper West Side, mom and dad are minus seven, minus eight, little Johnny's minus two and he's seven. It's a completely different conversation. They're like, doc, how do we keep my child's prescription as low as possible? So really adapting that conversation based on kind of where you're practicing, what kind of family setting you're dealing with. Um, And some families, you know, they come in asking for it before I even bring it up. Mm. So it, it, I when it comes so that being said um, when I'm trying to get a family on board I really try to think of it as long-term management most you know parents love their kids they they do care about like long term like this is best for your child when they're an adult I'm not only helping them with their vision now but the long term, this is going to affect them for the rest of their life. I'm controlling their factors, not only for their vision, but their eye health. And then they're like, oh, when I say, oh, glaucoma, retinal detachments, things like that. They're like, OK, OK, like, let's do the drops. And then I kind of sometimes I call it like an, an eye drop vitamin and they, it's really easy for them to kind of 
like jump onto that idea because a lot of them are already giving their kids vitamins anyway. So oh. this is a kind of like a vitamin for your eye. It's more prevention. It's really prevention long term. And this is how it works. It really just stabilizes it from getting from getting worse. So that's an interesting one of the challenges that I've ran into is because mm-hmm. yeah, we will get a parent, uh, right. both parents who are minus seven, minus nine. Right. One's had LASIK, one's in contacts. And they mm-hmm. just, I try to tell them the, the risks. You know, I try right. to, I've tried to sell them like, no, we have the risks of floaters sure, or detachments sure. or glaucoma, right. maculopathy. And some just don't buy it. They don't see it as a problem. Sure. You know, and that, it, so I, I kind of run into that. Have you ever had I that mean, issue? I mean, so at the end of the day, it's, Still an optional treatment, arguably. So you For now, can't, maybe, right? You can't... And just because... And just like any sort of treatment, whether it's a dry eye treatment, myopia management, whatever you're doing, sometimes the first conversation, it's a no-go. And that's fine. Okay, mm-hmm. like... You know what, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, they're not going to do myopia ge- management for little Johnny today. That's fine. But I, I'm I'm concerned about Johnny's vision. So I'm going to see him back in six months. And we're monitoring every six months. And if I see it go up by half a diopter in six months, then it's a different conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can say, oh, that's like progressing at four times the rate they should be or something. And right. sometimes just a second, third conversation, you can start to introduce that concept. You know, a lot of parents don't want their kids in contacts. Some parents don't want to use eye drops. Thankfully, we're starting to have more and more options for uh, for myopia management. So, again, it's kind of tailoring your treatment based on the val- family values. Uh, if they can get a drop in every day, great. Some families think that that's really easy. Some families are like, no, I don't want my kid on medication. <laughs> Fine, then we can we could talk about contact lenses. And if they're in, if the parents are in contact lenses already, it's it's kind of it's easier, easier, a little bit easier. So, um, what about lifestyle? Do you ever what what kind of just regular lifestyle coaching? Do you just tell them spend more time outside? Do right. You... I mean, it's tough. I mean. It's interesting because your most recent conversation with Dr. Ostrin, mm-hmm. she was saying how like there's kids are like only outside like like 40 minutes a day or something like horrifically low. I'm just like I hate to admit that was like that was me growing up. Like, I was still that was and that was how many 20 years ago. Yeah, so it's um I think we're especially in the city because it's not like you can just like send your kids to the backyard. Um, because children, you know, usually need to be like supervised to some extent outside. Mm-hmm. Um, here in the city. So it's not just like, okay, just go out to the back until dinner's done and getting that extra few whatever minutes in before, like the after school time. Um, it's amazing to me too, because many of my patients, I speak to them about outdoor time and some of my patients say they don't even get to go outside for recess, which I think is like cruel and unusual. I, I don't understand it, but there's some kids in the city, believe it or not, they're not even going outside for recess, which is like bananas. That's its own issue. Um, kids need to so, like be free. So their only time outside is like from going from like the bus into the car right. or, or from the school into the bus and then from the bus right. into the house. Or right. Something. I mean, my conversation is always, you know, parents think it's the screens and I say, mm. no, it's not necessarily about the screens. It's about prioritizing outdoor time. I don't want you to think about the screens. Everybody's going to be on a screen. I don't really want the message to be screens are bad. Yeah. I, I don't think that's actually helpful. I'd rather say, but outdoor time's is best so like let's prioritize outdoor time and nine times out of ten they're not gonna be on their screen when they're outside so even if you had to walk around the block i don't care walk your neighbor's dog you know find something um whatever you can negotiate 
between the child's caregivers, whether that's aunt, uncle, babysitter, grandma, whomever. Like, mm-hmm. if we can even just get 30 more minutes a day outdoors, that's great. Like, just stopping at the park on the way home for school. Like, let's just do it. Um, and we can kind of squeeze in those minutes. So those that's kind of my approach. I don't, I don't like the squeeze or bad message. I think that can arguably be a little bit harmful to kids. You have to understand they're very impressionable. And, and they like, don't have say, a choice. They don't really have a choice. They're on their Chromebooks or whatever for school. So, um, you know, trying to temper that language, yeah. I think it's important. And their favorite thing to do is play the video games. So right. you're telling them right. I mean, I li- Right. And... I like to say, you know, try to play with three-dimensional toys. Like go back to your blocks, go back to like G.I. Joe's and dolls, um and have that creative play sure. so you know it's not again it's not about them not having their free time and not having their play time but about varying those those types of activities if they have to be indoors for whatever reason so you know it's a it's a delicate conversation um i'm very aware of what the child is hearing coming out of my voice because i think you know i arguably have an authoritative voice and they're and they're young like mind and you never know what is going to hurt or help a child one doctor one adult in their life says something so i try to you know walk that line uh carefully i guess right i just to kind of i i want to kind of switch to a different question sure sure please uh now i know passion wise obviously you're seeing patients we love taking care of our patients but you also have another huge passion you teach you right. have students you I, have externs you sure. you mentor not just uh, students and, and professionals in our own space mm-hmm. but like undergrad students is sure. that correct yeah so um it's interesting because two um two or three local universities started pre-optometry school mm. clubs in the last five years or so and uh one of pre-optometry students were techs at my former job and they were like Oh, like they were trying to find ODs to like come and speak to their pre-optometry club. So then I kind of like jumped on board. I honestly, I I love it. I think it's also really good for me to realize like how the the students are changing. Like they're like much younger than me now, which is like wild to think about. I had an experience where I went to a a high school just to speak at like a healthcare fair about like what what we do as an optometry. And I thought in my head, in my head, I still felt like a 17 year old. Right. And even though I was like 30 walking in, I'm like, I know how these guys think. I know how, (laughs) what they care about. And then I walked in, I'm like, this is terrifying. (laughs) Like they, they don't care. They are not paying attention. Exactly. They're they're looking at their phone the whole time. Right, right, right. And I'm like studying this classroom and I'm like, which one of you kids was me? Oh, that weird kid in the corner, (laughs) you know? um, Yeah. So, um, it's, it's good for me to kind of like especially since I train students in residence to try to be up with the time, so to speak. Um, But I think it's, I think it's really great to just kind of overcome a lot of their very common fears or just Mm -hmm. give them that confidence. Um, You know, they're really bright students that are studying their butts off. They're doing all these extra things. They're doing research. They're doing internships, like all this kind of stuff that I definitely did not do to get in that top really? school. <laughs> no, I was not that cool, I guess. 
um they're like bending over backwards i'm like guys you're gonna get in like as long you're clearly have shown like you're committed to the profession sure. you're you can handle the course load if this is what you want it's just literally filling out the application yeah. and, 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 and doing it they don't show up to you. the interview like just wearing pajamas correct and... like if you have it together and you turn your stuff in on time like you're it's you're gonna be fine um so you know, with so, I mean, maybe I don't use those exact words, but it's just kind of coaching them through every little um, bit of it. So I've had several pre-optometry students get accepted, which is so super exciting. Um, There's one- Did they send you thank you letters? Yes, I try to keep in touch with them. As it's also important, I think it's to like have that lifeline on the outside because in school you can, it's kind of disorienting. Like you think you know what you're getting into, then you're in school and it's nothing like what you thought. And then you're like, wait, what, what am I really doing here? So having that doc to like reach out to about whatever exams, boards, whatever's going on, um, reassuring them, like, you know, when I started and first year of optometry school, I was terrible at retinoscopy. And now since I've done literally tens of thousands of of eyes, I'm really good at it. So don't just remember, I started the same place you did. Like, it's going to be fine. You just have to practice a ton. So um, just reminding them like the 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 end uh, is definitely not what it's like. The journey is like mm. not what it's really going to be like on the outside. So I find a lot of joy in it. There's actually a non-traditional pre-optometry student that I've, I'm mentoring right now, and she's deciding between two schools. And so... It's been really cool to just see her journey and things by like non-traditional. That. What do you? She she's um, basically she's an optician, and she is finally she finally finished her undergraduate degree, and she's you know in her thirties, and she's um, applying to school to become an optometrist. So she's just had this winding path, and mm-hmm. it's you know you'd be I I think it's really great to have that kind of diversity in our field especially coming from optician I think it's I'm like you're going to be listen oh, you're going to be she's you're going to be, way be ahead. eons ahead yeah. compared to your classmates trust me when I tell you cuz you actually know how to talk to people mm. you know how to deal with patients like that is a like a huge <laughs> huge advantage um and it's not to mention just understanding how glasses work like you're just at a huge advantage so um you know just c- trying to reassure her through this process um and just see her passion and the fact that the fact that she's so motivated at this stage in her life is just inspiring to me because mm-hmm. i can't say that i would do the same so i think you you yeah. you definitely hit a nail there about being prepared to talk with patients right. or understand how to Correct. communicate. Correct. Because I remember when I was in school and I shadowed like a summer, the summer between first and second year, I went and shadowed at an right. optometrist, uh, his office. And I was really nervous to to talk with people or to be right. like a tech or just do the basic right. stuff. I just didn't know how to come across. Correct. I wasn't sure of myself. I wasn't sure. I was over, I still over explain things, but uh, I was, you know, somebody asked like, what do polarized glasses do? And then I start talking about like the polarized filters and try to explain scientifically how light bounces off flat surfaces and they just stare at you. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I definitely, it took a long time. And I remember, and then of course, the way you talk with kids versus the way you talk with um, a a 70 year old war vet at the VA uh, or at a private practice. Like, right. It's all very different. It's all very different. So I I think that is a huge, that's going to be a huge asset for for that student that you're talking about. Exactly. Exactly.
the um, I remember in our school they they kind of played with an idea of having questions that a patient would ask on like a back of a card right. and as a game you wouldn't know what it was but you had to answer as quick as you could whoever had the best answer you'd flip it around and like on the spot like oh, the old wow. answer oh, wow. we never did it but i heard somebody talking about trying trying to see how I people mean, would do yeah with that's that. a good idea i think it's communication is definitely a skill and the w- more ways you can practice it uh you know whether it's amongst your classmates or with supervisors or with actual patients the better you get out of it and it's mm-hmm. it's something that docs are constantly de- i'm constantly developing my communication skills and how i speak to patients so you know the pref- profession is constantly evolving just like we were talking about myopia management so you have to like learn a new vocabulary mm-hmm. and how to speak to folks um so, you know, it's, you know, to your point, like just communicate, you have to be a good communicator. I was teasing, you know, I talk for a living. I literally talk for a living. Optometry just happens to be like, I do a little bit of optometry and mostly talking. So, you know, I have to be a really good talker. Yeah. Have you ever lost your voice throughout a day of exams? I, I, ha- I haven't yet, but maybe that's why I have strong vocal cords or something. Right. Um, I've definitely gotten close. I've gotten where it's like, I have seen, I've been like double, triple booked all day long. Right. And I'm just, it's like getting around three o'clock and I'm like, I'm just exhausted right. and I'm just sick of talking. <laughs> right. I'm always, I'm really careful about taking those critical breaks and like closing mm. the door for like two minutes. Okay. I'm going to do nothing but drink water for the next two minutes. Leave me alone. That's really so. s- smart of, and self-awareness that you have. I think right. that was one thing mentors, when I did my residency, there was a day I almost passed out. Oh wow! Uh, because I wasn't drinking water, I right. wasn't taking a break to eat right, at the right. VA I was at. We really didn't. My my other co-resident and I were just. We were lucky if we had a moment to stuff our heads in the locker and just eat a bite of a sandwich sure. in between patients. So, right. um, the, yeah, there was a day I I, I just oh, wow. I fell down into a chair oh, because gosh. I was just exhausted. That's so bad. I mean, I'm at the hospital. It can get crazy at the hospital, definitely. But I try to teach my 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 students and my residents I'm like we work hard so we can play hard we work hard to be done on time so we can have you know the hospital we have a scheduled one hour lunch so if you work really hard you can actually take a whole hour and I show them you can streamline your exam so you actually have time to eat you can get up stretch your legs you can actually go outside and see the sunshine for a few minutes you know it's so important it's really important to have that kind of you know uh, approach to work and then like if we're if we work hard, we can be done on time, and then you get to go home to your family and do whatever you want to do, mm-hmm. you know, on time. So, not to say that you should rush your exams, but I think when you do have an opportunity to break, I tell them you have to take a break. It's very important to take a break. So, I try to instill that into them because they, you know, sometimes they just like, oh, I don't want to eat, but I'm like, right. no, you're gonna kill yourself. Yeah, if you if you're not taking care of yourself, if, then right. how can you show up a hundred percent for your patient and take Absolutely. care of them? Absolutely. So. I I definitely practice what I preach because I get I get hangry. <laughs> yes. When Doctor Shear starts to get hangry, it's time People for a timeout. <laughs> it's like that Snickers commercial. Right. Like, it's bad. Snickers. It's bad. And nobody wants to be around me. I need to take a break. <laughs> what? Um, so was there? Since you have this passion for mentorship, right. Did you have big mentors um, before optometry, and then maybe in optometry school? Like, who were some of your mentors? Yeah, I mean, what, what I, you remember? I have a huge, huge advantage because I actually grew up in my mother's optom- optometric practice. Oh, cool. 
Yeah, so I literally, from age four months on, I've been in optometry practice. So it's like in your blood, then. It's it, great. Yeah, literally. And, you know, I got off the bus in middle school at my mom's practice and I would do like confirm the appointments, pull charts when she was still on paper. And uh, what a good way to get someone to say, yes, I'm coming in when this like eight year old's <laughs> voice is like, are you coming in for tomorrow's eye exam? I wasn't that young. Okay. Give my mom <laughs> a break. But, and then I, you know, um, it might be child labor laws. Right. For that. I don't know. <laughs> right. If I was working, I mean, whatever, two or three hours, I don't know. Um, but then I worked up to like teaching INRs and then scribing and all this stuff. So, um, I, I think that it's interesting too going back to our communication because it, a lot of things I still say are directly from my mom. I'm like, mm. wow, that's literally, you know, Dr. Byling coming out of me right now. So I'm very, very fortunate. And her partner, Tim Early, has also been really great mentor yeah. to me as well. Um, um, and then, you know, I also grew up going to, she went to Ohio State. So I went to Ohio State a lot. We went, always went to the alumni um, the parties and things That's, like that. I think of, of all so, the schools I've ever heard, um, and I'm surprised you didn't go to the Ohio School of Optometry. Yeah, I mean, I I applied. I applied to SUNY in Ohio State and I ended up going to SUNY and then I've stuck ever since. So it's yeah. just like... So it's a perfect fit for you then. All right, thank you. Yeah. Um, but it seems like anybody, whether undergrad or optometry, I feel like the Ohio State speaks, those students speak the loudest right. and shout the loudest I mean, about their passion for their school, right. which I don't blame them if, like, if it's a good school. It's but. a, right. I mean, it's definitely, it's a definitely different vibe because it's a, you know, the, the optometry school is right there on a campus that's mm -hmm. like, you know, have some, you know, a huge university. So you get the whole university experience. Unlike, you know, at SUNY, it's just like one building and it's just optometry. Sure. So, you know, it's a totally different vibe. I went to, I got my undergraduate at Ohio State. So I had that college experience and then I decided to spread my wings a little bit for optometry school. I, I honestly, when I applied to SUNY, I definitely didn't think I was going to stay in New York City. That was not the plan at all. But here I am. So, right. I think the whole, your passion for, the, the idea that, you know, having a passion for mentoring, sure. passing down Correct. your knowledge, yeah. watching, um, mm -hmm. you're, you're really giving back to the profession in many Correct. ways that way. Because you, if you love the profession, you want to talk about it. You want to help other Correct. people not fall into the same pitfalls that you did. Sure. So I think, so this is my biggest thing is that I think that I especially early on in my career, you go from being around like a bunch of docs and a bunch of students to just being by yourself. And it, at the ODMD practice, they would just put me, literally they would put me in a corner because nobody wanted to deal with the kids. So I was always practicing by myself. So I honestly felt really isolated and I was trying to find ways to like reinvigorate my passion for the profession. Mm. And I think it, it's really important to have those things outside of the exam room to keep you going because if you're just spending your days in small dark rooms and talking to strangers about which is better one or two it can it can it can be draining let's be honest yeah. and so having these other things having these other outlets uh, it reminds you why you're doing it uh, and it keeps it fresh I think it's really important to find it doesn't matter what it is whether it's research writing speaking something like this interviewing like having a little bit of something on the outside to make the profession great I and mean, it's a small profession too we all really need each other we it's a it's a small team so to speak we all really need to support each other um and everybody 
you know, it's, we're all in a different stage of our careers. We all do need different things from each other at different points. So it's, I definitely would not be in the place I am today without the amazing mentors that I had. Um, and a lot of these students, you know, a lot of times they're like first generation college goers, the, the pre-optometry students that I'm mentoring oh, wow. now. And so like, they really have like not, it's like a whole new path for them. Yeah. Um, so they're really blazing the trail on their own. And so it's just, to me, I find that inspiring to like really f- find that and go forward because arguably my path was relatively paved for me. Um, because you had a family because in of, it. Right, you were right exactly. So, um, you know, it's, I need folks, they need folks, we all need each other. Um, and this is something that I just keep coming back to. Well, I'm really happy that you are focused on that and that you're speaking about it because uh, I think in a way, a lot of what I've been trying to accomplish myself mm-hmm. and, and is because I feel the same way. I right. want to be able to share not only our knowledge, but kind right. of pass things down, whether it be to other professionals in the space sure. or, or in my my passion is speaking more, even more to the public of like, right. you know, just trying to get them to understand 1% more of how important their eyes are and, and seeing a doctor, getting things treated sooner, right. lifestyle changes, like that can pay dividends Correct. for your And there's so many like life. myths out there. Oh. <laughs> there's so many myths out there it's a lot about of, people a lot really of don't <laughs> understand what's really going on. So I really appreciate your work. I'm very appreciative to try to debunk one myth at a time. Oh, and the, and the, the, the tough thing is, is that for every one myth you try to debunk, there's 10 more, more. weird gurus in their basement who say the opposite, <laughs> right. who are trying to, you know, if you read into it, you can hear that they're actually selling some sort of a weird vitamin <laughs> or an eye drop that isn't FDA tested or approved. And right, right. there's always something. Sure, right? sure. Um, but I, I, I love to ask this, with what you've experienced in, in your practice and profession, mm-hmm. what, what do you think... At the end of the day, what what often frustrates you? And if you could snap your fingers to fix one thing that would make optometry better? Hmm. That's a really it, tough question. It is a tough one. <laughs> um, wow. I have not thought about this. To make optometry better. Um, it doesn't have to be one. If, you, if there's a few things. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, public awareness, I think, is high up there um i i i think one of the biggest things is folks valuing their skills and valuing Mm -hmm. what they bring to the table um i often sometimes what i get frustrated with is folks not keeping their skills up or getting kind of lazy or not valuing what they bring to the table um or I don't want to say getting lazy, but they're just, we, we really have a big scope and can really help a, a wide range of, of, of folks. And, you know, sometimes like I'm in awe, like I feel like I'm so grateful. I can help so many different types of people. Um, and so that part of it, I just wish that folks realize you can really make a big difference. Um, and really valuing that and what is what is that worth and what is good eye health, good vision really worth. And I hope they, they put the value on, the, on themselves and find um, not just like self-fulfillment, you know, 
um, compensation, you know, it's valuable. No, it's it's extremely. I think that so. we have so many more skills. Our, our sure. like you said, our scope is very broad. We do a lot of we assessment. Lot. We do a lot more than glasses and contacts. Correct. We all know that. Correct. And in, sadly, in a world, that's what people still think Correct. we do. That, that sure. that's where they see our value. Sure. And even our in, in own industry, in right. a frustrating way, right. still markets and sells that right how many times do we hear commercials on the radio or whatnot like oh two pairs of glasses for sixty dollars and the exam is free right the exam is free right like it's totally wild it's yeah yeah i mean yeah and i've been in different settings where you know where that where the patient just sees me as like a one stop to get their their yeah. prescriptions. Unfortunately, and that's, that's, that's like a lot literally of it's like, and so to me, I try my best to add that little bit of value and try mm-hmm. to break that a little bit, and then ultimately, you know, I'm not necessarily in those types of settings anymore. Um, but I think even if you're in, I think there's ways to kind of break through. Um, if you're willing to take that uh, one step or a little bit more energy to show the the patient all the all the skills you have and the Definitely. value that you bring to their life and their lifestyle, and that's one of the things I think. If I had a dream clinic of my own, sure. uh, and the clinic where I work at is amazing, I, I would just wish that every exam room had like a giant. 80 inch screen TV with a constant live feed of what all of the metrics, like we've done a pentacam, we've done uh, auto refraction, we've done this, here's a prescription, uh, like a digitalized version of like being able to show what's going on inside the eye, fungus photos, a slit lamp movie that that I can upload to their, their, so they... I, I wish they could just better visualize. I think that's Correct. one of the, the difficult things for Correct. most consumers and patients right. is that there's so much knowledge. We went to school for how long Correct. to understand the eyes. And most people don't know the difference what the cornea is. They don't know what the pupil Correct. is, the retina. They confuse Correct. what the cataract, glaucoma. They don't know. Correct. Right. Correct. So, I mean, I think it's, I think that's an overall trend with medicine though, because it's like the doctor is in charge of the data. And I think that's a bigger conversation you can have is like, who should be in charge of the data? Right. And I think, um, you know, obviously it's our job to analyze it and, and come up with a, a treatment plan. Um, but there's are really a little bit of paternalism, you know, protectiveness over patient, patient exam findings and things like that. So, you know, that's, you know, kind of like what we're inheriting from old school medicine practices. So if you just like put it on a huge screen, I think, um, all doctors arguably are analyzing that same amount of data, um, and I think it would be overwhelming, it would be mind-blowing for the patients for sure. But then you could actually see what's really going on, the mm-hmm. whole full picture. Um, it's a really interesting concept. My, my thought is just that uh, you, you're going to be, you're more likely to take good care of yourself right. if you really understand what's going on. Because sure. we can tell patients to eat vegetables eat fruit, you know, eat fruit, fruit and vegetables, drink right. more water. Right. But just telling them to do that right. isn't really motivating. Sure. They know they should, but they're still going to oh, go right, eat, right, right. eat, you know, soft drinks and candy bars and sure. things like that. They're going to go get fast food, but they know they should be eating fruits and vegetables, right. but we're not really teaching them why. Sure. I feel like if they understood the physiology of what's going on, they'd be like, oh, 
Okay. Right. Um, so, so that's kind of my thought. I'm like, let's show and teach I mean, them. Lifestyle choices, lifestyle changes are long-term investments. Mm-hmm. So it's tough because we live such a quick fix. We want a quick fix now, but having a healthier lifestyle, it takes really time, a long time, arguably to see some of those benefits. Yeah. You know, it has a lot of commitment. You, so, could, you could say that just back to myopia control. Correct. I mean, myopia control, dry eye, anything, right? Um, managing your diabetes, whatever it is. Um, you know, so again, is it, 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 it's tough too, because prevention, prevention is arguably the best medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, but then if we, if we, if we prevent all of it, then we have nothing to treat. Sure. Well, I'd love no, to have. I, mean, I would love to have, have that problem. Let's, let's, let's like make all of our patients see perfectly, and they don't need us. That would be amazing, right? Um. I always look in the the futuristic movies, whether it be Star Trek, um, right. Star Wars. Almost nobody has glasses on in any of those right. video, those those episodes and things like that. And it's like, gosh, what what would be that miracle cure other than you know? Oh, we can plug out the eye and put a new one in. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's right. that's what I try to tell patients. Oftentimes, I'm like, look, if you lose your hand, you lose your arm. Um, you can get an organ transplant, you get new kidneys, all these different things. <laughs> we can't figure out the eye. Right. You know, the eye is an extension of your brain. We'd basically be doing a brain transplant. Correct. In a, in a sense. Right. So I even told them with all the technology, we're still hundreds of years away sure. from figuring that out. Sure. So we have to do what we can now. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's pretty extreme. Yeah. Um, that would be wild if we could figure that out, but uh, yeah, that's far, far away. Yeah. So, um, Elsa, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, uh, of let me know right now, other than other than mentorship. Sure. What do you give a damn about? What do you really care yeah. about our profession? What drives you to um, find success? You're continually doing not just seeing patients, right. but you're mentoring. Uh, you're basically teaching. You, you also won an award recently right. for basically creating editorial Great. information for other doctors sure. right here in the state of New York. Sure. So it's it's interesting because i have dibbled and dabbled in a lot in a relatively short career um i've always been made it if i if i don't like something that i'm in charge of changing it i mean last year i was just like trans making that big transition and really focusing and being willing to be really flexible with my schedule and really committing to that um again it's i haven't necessarily i'm still kind of Besides mentoring, I'm figuring out how I'm going to be involved, for example, in our local society here in New York City again, um, because I had to take a step back while I was figuring out my career. Um, You know, I think it's, there's so much to be involved in, and I do think it's a process. Then if one thing isn't, isn't really your calling, that means that don't do, just don't give it up. Try something else. Um, There's so many different opportunities especially you know and we all need like i said kind of we all need each other so if if one thing isn't really speaking to your calling try something else and if that's not working out try something else so i'm still a little bit in that stage i would say but i keep trying different things um and yeah i think to me it's about the people i'm inspired by my colleagues i'm inspired by my patients i'm inspired by these students and residents um 
you know, finding those little gems every day and, and, and being grateful for those are, is really key for me. So, you know, the world is my oyster, so to speak. We'll see where it goes. We'll see where I am in a year or two from now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful for the journey. Thank you so much, yeah. Elsa. Thank you for being here and of part course. of the podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Allen. It was great to be here and doing this at Vision Expo East and, and having a great day. So thank you again. Yeah.